Good morning. 2020 is a year declared and proclaimed at New Freedom Church to be a year of prayer. Let's just all say that together. A year of prayer. And we're going to pray this year. So excited to begin this brand new series with you called Effective Prayer. Several series we're going to do this year is going to be focused on prayer as we continue to pray, not only uh, individually, but I think that there is something that happens when we activate our prayer lives corporately. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning as we lay the groundwork for why that we as believers are even able to have effective prayers. When I think about prayer, it's not so much a code to be cracked or a topic that is going to be exhausted. It's such a large topic. We could teach and preach about it for years even. But what prayer really is, when you boil it down to its basic essentials, is prayer is a conversation to be had. Many times we don't even realize we are praying when we are praying. It's just simply communicating with God, telling God what's on our heart, and sharing with him all of the things that are troubling us, that are bringing us joy, anything that is happening in our life, that is what prayer is all about. It actually is, is kind of built in to the way that we operate. And so in this series, I want to take an intentional look at not only praying, but also inviting God's presence into everything that we do. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to live if we just invite God's presence into all that we do? So this morning we start effective prayer. And I just wanted to find for you what the word effective means. I had to look this up just to make sure that, that I was going in the right direction. Effective means this, successful in producing a desired or intended result. So if we are going to pray effective prayers, we want to make sure that our prayers are producing the desired or intended result. Now, Personally, I had to really grapple with this a little bit because I realized that so many of my prayers are prayed in the affirmative. Maybe you pray like this. You, you pray in such a way that you're asking God or you're putting a petition before God. You may be interceding for someone and you're praying in, in, in the affirmative to where you're expecting, anticipating even a yes answer back from God. But how many knows every now and then, or maybe more than every now and then, we will receive an answer back from God that's no. Sometimes we receive an answer of slow, just slow it down, just, just not yet. But I, I really don't pray in such a way to receive a no or a slow answer. I usually pray in such a way to receive a yes answer. Now, is, can anybody relate to that in the room? Okay, good. I'm in, I'm in a good company this morning. So if we're going to pray effective prayers, the effectiveness is not measured on how many of our prayers get answered the way we pray them, but rather the effectiveness of our prayer is if we see our hearts and our lives aligning with the plans, the purposes, and the promises of God. That is an effective prayer. So where does this word come from? Where does this notion of having effective prayer come from? It comes from the book of James. Now, here's what you have to know about James, and I would love to do a series on James. Maybe I'll do it this year, because this is one of the more fascinating characters in the New Testament to me. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine being a sibling of Jesus? I mean, your brother is God. How could you ever measure up? How could you ever have a, a, a kudos or attaboy or anything? I mean, you talk about a sibling rivalry, it's, a, it's done before you even start. There's no... There is not even anything to strive for. Jesus' brother James gives us such an insight into prayer. And not only just simple prayer, but effective prayer. James chapter 5, this is right at the end of the letter that he wrote. 
verses 13 through 16, he gives us some instruction and gives us some teaching on prayer. He says this, is anyone among you in trouble? What do they do? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If they have, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and say it with me. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Effective prayer. So let's look at this just a little bit. Is anyone among you in trouble, he says. He, he kind of categorizes some things. Is anyone in trouble? If you have trouble, then there is an answer for your trouble. All you need to do is pray. If you're happy, it's okay to pray. But he says, just go ahead and sing a song. And that's why we come together and we celebrate and we worship and we sing. Because we know that at any given time in a, in a body of believers like this, there will be those among us who are in trouble that have some tension, have some, some transition that's happening in their lives. There will be those that are celebrating. They're going to be happy, and so we sing songs. There are going to be some among us that are sick. They find themselves not well. And so we have something to offer to everyone. We have an effective way that we align our prayers and our hearts to God. We pray in such a manner that honors his purposes, his plan, and his promises, not only in our life, but also in the world today. And so they say to us to call upon the elders of the church. Now, this is more, I believe, than just those specific people that are given a position in the church of elder. Even though that, that's very important. Uh, the, the, the office of an elder is very important in a local body, and, and we have that here. But I believe that this goes a little bit deeper, because there may be times where you're going to need to pray, and you can't call upon someone who is uh, an officer of the church. You, you need to call upon an elder, someone who is established in the faith, someone who can get a hold of God with you, that can come into agreement. And I think this is what it's talking about. The elders of the church are those who can come into agreement with you, and it says to anoint them with oil. You, you may be wondering, we, over here we have uh, anointing oil. This is here for every single service. And we have this, this little jar here with some, some cloths with it. Now, there's nothing that's special about this oil. There's nothing magical about this oil. We probably bought some olive oil from Kroger and we prayed over it and put it in this bottle. So it didn't come from Israel. It didn't come from the tree that Jesus wept at in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just normal oil. But how many knows that God can take something natural and cause the supernatural to happen from it? And so when we anoint someone with oil and prayer, the prayer of faith, it's not that we have faith in our prayer. We don't even have faith in the oil. We have faith in the one we are praying to. And when we anoint a cloth like this, the scripture tells us that Paul the apostle, when he couldn't go to every single person, when he couldn't be there himself physically, that they would take pieces of cloth from his, his garment and they would anoint it with oil and they would take it to the sick. And it says that this kind of a, a, a contact was a connection of faith, that when someone would receive that in faith, they would say, oh, wow, someone thought enough to pray about me. Someone thought enough to pray for me. And so it activates something in them to direct their faith towards God. If they are sick, then they call for the elders of the church. They anoint it with oil and they pray the prayer of faith. Just last week, I was in the hospital, Bethesda North, and, and I was getting ready to leave because the, the person I was there visiting was getting ready to go to have a scan done. And he pulled out of his sock this baggie. Inside the baggie was a New Freedom Church prayer cloth. 
And he said, do you think it's okay if I just take this out of the baggie and put it here in my sock all by itself? I said, well, sure, do anything that you want with it. He said, I just have a special request. Next time, could you make these claws just a little bit bigger? I almost lost it in my last scan. But he thought so much about the cloth that someone had anointed from here to take to him. It was an anchor point. It was a place where he could see and look at it and say, someone has prayed an effective prayer for me. Someone has called out for me before the altar of God. And so it says the prayer of faith is prayed. And this is not confidence in any formula that we can come up with with prayer. This is confidence in God. See, the, the early apostles did this with Jesus. Jesus came along walking uh, the roadside and he saw a man who was blind. And so what he does is he spits into the, the, the dirt. He makes a little mud pie and he puts it in the guy's eyes, right? And so the blind man starts to see as he's wiping the dirt and the mud out of his eyes. And so... Another time, he calls Zacchaeus out of the tree and says, come on, come down out of that tree. You're going to have a meal with me today. We're going to go to your house and we're going to eat. And so as the disciples start mirroring this and seeing this, they start to create a formula, as it would, of how that healing happens. And so they get off on their own and they, okay, if someone needs to to see from being blind, all we got to do is make a mud pie and put it in their eye. They they think that this is the formula. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not about the formula. It's about the prayer of faith having confidence in the one that you're praying to. When you are connected with the Heavenly Father, then you have the authority in this earth to call those things which be not as though they were. To pray the prayer of faith, and that prayer will, it says, save the sick. Now, this is interesting because I would have thought the text would read, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Isn't that what we pray for the sick is for healing? We want healing for them, right? That's what I always pray for. I want healing. But here's the the, the fact that the, the brother of Jesus recognizes. The greatest miracle that can ever happen is not that someone who is sick will be made well to carry on a few more days in this natural life, But the greatest miracle that can ever happen is that the prayer of faith would save the sick, salvation would visit the sick, that they would be delivered from their sin. That is the greatest miracle. Now, it's wonderful when healing happens physically. I pray for it all the time, and I have seen it and witnessed it myself in my own body and in the lives of others. But the greatest miracle is not for someone's mortal body to be made well for a little while again. The greatest miracle is to save the sick, and that if they have committed any sins... They are forgiven. You see the emphasis on salvation, upon getting the first things first, upon getting the first things right, and then the other things happen. The scriptures tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. If you start seeking these other things, you may attain a few of those things. You may get a couple of these good things, but it will never satisfy unless you have first sought the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But it does say something about healing here because it says that after the sick person is forgiven, that confession, let's, let's look at this part. It says, therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. Confession is good for the soul. Confession is me unburdening what's on my heart, sometimes to another person, for accountability purposes, for recovery purposes, for healing purposes, but every single time, confession to God. 
so that I may be healed. And here's what the notion of healing is way more than just your body being made a little bit better. But healing is complete wholeness, mind, body, and soul. There are some people who are so sick, yet they're physically active. They can do anything and better than you can do it physically, but they're soul sick. They're mind sick. They're heavy hearted. There's some sickness that is happening on the inside of them that they just cannot quite settle those raging thoughts in their mind, those anxieties and those fears that are happening all the time, this warfare, this battle that is raging on the inside of their mind, that the greatest enemy is not anything out there. The enemy is inside their own head and they are not well. And God wants them healed. Every single one of them. God wants every one of us to walk in this kind of healing. But this last verse, it really caught me. It got my attention because it says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I don't know about you. I want to pray effective prayer. I want to pray prayers that have the intended result and desired effect happen on the other side of the prayer. But it says the effective prayer in another version uh, it says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Think about this. Do you want your prayers to avail? Do you want them to proceed? Do you want them to have the impact? Yes, of course we do. But it talks about a person who is, number one, fervent. Fervent means hot or burning. It means glowing. A fervent uh, prayer of a righteous person. Now, this is what really got me. The prayer of a righteous person what does it mean to be righteous? How does a person become righteous? This is a, a series all on its own. But let me just summarize it for you the, the best that I know how to bring it into our text today and bring it into the matter of praying today. Righteousness is simply this. You can write this down. Righteousness means right standing. Righteousness means right standing. It's actually a courtroom word. It's a word we get out of, out of the legal system, righteousness. To be a righteous person means that you are in right standing. I would venture to say that as I look out at this audience, I don't know about the online people, but as I look out at this audience, everyone in here is probably in right standing with law and order and with the court. If not, the officer in the lobby would have probably got... We, our, our attendance actually went down when we started putting an officer out there. People, I don't know if I'm going to go there. Listen, we're not, we're not IDing you or anything like that. But righteousness is actually a law word. It's a courtroom kind of word. And it means that you're in right standing with law and order. And so when we lay that over into the spiritual terms, when we lay it over into spiritual world, here, here's what I want to describe about righteousness. In the heavenly realms, you and I were drug into a courtroom. It was a courtroom of the ages. And the accuser of the brethren, Satan, drug us into the courtroom. As we got into the courtroom, we saw that the stage had already been set. There was no jury present because God was the judge and he's on the throne. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a court of law. I've been to a courtroom. 
I've sat through some court proceedings, and it's nerve-wracking. There's a certain decorum in a courtroom. You're not going to dress any old way you want to and stroll on into that court. There is a certain attire. There is a certain respect. There is a certain understanding of how you are conducting yourself when you sit in that courtroom. And you're not going to have your cell phone on, and you're not going to be able to look up Google, and you're not going to be on social media because the judge makes all the rules in the courtroom. He will tell you what is proper and what is right in his or her courtroom. And when you go into a courtroom, there are certain things you do and certain things you don't do. But spiritually speaking, you and I were summoned into, and really by Satan, we were drugged into a courtroom. We got into that courtroom and we recognized that God, the righteous judge, was sitting on the throne. And as accusation after accusation was coming against us, she's unholy, God. She's unrighteous. He lied. He cheated. He stole. Every single one of us had to bow our head with disgrace because every charge that the enemy of our soul made against us was true, was factual, and was accurate. And as we stood there, God the Father looked over to us and said, how do you plead? We had to say, guilty. Guilty as charged. I'm unrighteous, I'm unholy, I'm ungodly, I'm unworthy. I don't deserve any mercy in this courtroom. But then Jesus, our defense attorney, stood to his feet and he said, Father, if you allow me to say a word, please. Joe Schutz is guilty as charged, but he's forgiven. Because of my blood shed at Calvary, he is pardoned once and for all. And you have been declared righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's nothing you can earn. It's nothing you can work for. You can't be good enough. You can't keep up a standard enough. The righteousness of God, to be a righteous person, is obtained one way and one way only, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ. That's it. We are declared righteous by God. But we have a problem. We have a problem because sometimes we don't feel righteous, do we? Sometimes we don't even act righteous. Let me, let me get into this word righteousness according to the scriptures. Romans 1 and 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to what? Salvation. For everyone who believes. Just look to your neighbor and say, I'm a believer. For everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, look here, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I stand before God guilty as charged, but putting my faith in Jesus for his finished work on the cross, therefore I have been made and declared righteous because I am part of his family. I am covered by his blood. It was by faith that I put my trust in him, and therefore that makes me righteous. As it is written, the just shall live By faith. So righteousness is right standing with God. But we have a problem. Because those moments that I don't feel righteous, those moments that I don't act righteous, those moments that I have strayed away, those moments that I want to hide and sow a fig leaf on me and put it as a covering for my sin, I distance myself from God And we have all done it. We have all been there. We all go through seasons like this. And so are there times where our prayers are hindered? 
Let me ask you this. Are there times where our prayers are hindered because of our lack of confidence in the righteousness of God, thereby making us righteous? And I would say, personally, yes. There are times in which that happens. Now, maybe you were raised with a mom like my mom. My mom was fair to a fault. My mom would allow the neighbor to come and, and give a grievance. And I remember one time I had punched the neighbor kid. I was about nine years old. I had punched the neighbor kid. I ran home. And uh, lo and behold, about five minutes later, a knock on the door was the neighbor kid and his mom looking for my mom. And she told what I did to her son. And my mom said, well, what do you think we should do to Joey? Well, I think Joey deserves a whip. And my mom said, well, then whip him. That's the kind of mom I was raised with. It was, it was a mom that was fair to a fault. And whenever I would not act righteous as her child, I would feel like running and hiding. I would feel like covering up. I would feel as though I was out of right standing with my mom and with her standards. I knew that I had strayed from the way. And therefore, I wouldn't ask my mom for favor. I wouldn't ask my mom for allowance. I wouldn't ask my mom for the things which I normally would when I knew I was in right state. I mean, when I cleaned the house and I did my chores and I was the good boy and I got the good report card, I was ready to tell mom, hey, I deserve this, right? I'm, I'm in right standing with you. This is what, how we compare our relationship with God is many times the way we were raised. Many times the way that we work for, like we go to a job, we say, well, I put in 40 hours at the end of the week. I deserve my check. I have worked for it. And we put that notion into our spiritual life all the time. But it doesn't quite compute. Because if we would look a little bit deeper into the family dynamics, regardless of whether I made good grades or bad, regardless of whether I hit the neighbor or kicked the cat, it doesn't matter. I was never going to not be her son. I was always going to be her son. She was never going to deny me food or shelter. I was going to have a place to stay. It's just that if I didn't do the right things and I didn't feel as though I was in right standing with her, I certainly wouldn't ask for a favor. I certainly wouldn't ask for an advantage. I certainly wouldn't ask for good things. And so this is what hinders our prayers as believers is that we have been declared righteous. That's an established fact. It was finished at Calvary. There's nothing we can add to it. Yet when we drift, when we stray, when we miss church for five or six weeks, oh me, when we don't read our Bible like we sh think we should, when we don't pray, when we don't witness our faith, we start to feel unrighteous. Can I tell you what that is? That is the prosecuting attorney accusing you, trying to make you believe that you're not what God says you are. You don't feel righteous anymore. And therefore, many times when we don't feel in right standing with God, we don't even have confidence in our prayers. We'll do something like this. They'll all look to us to pray and we'll say, uh, let's let somebody else pray today. We don't feel righteous. Doesn't mean we're not. I was still her child all the time. You're, you're still in the family, but you just don't feel to pray it. It's kind of like this tension we live in right now, is that we know that at the resurrection, the kingdom of God was established. It was initiated on the earth. It was established right then. Jesus was present and fully aware and encompassing this kingdom. Yet we know that as we look around, it appears that so many things have gone awry that God's kingdom does not seem to be in control in natural terms. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, he said this, my kingdom is not of this world. 
It's coming into and it's invading this world, but it's not of this world. And so we live in this time of knowing God has initiated, inaugurated his kingdom, and yet we're waiting for the return of Jesus to fully consummate this kingdom. And we live in between this. And this is what happens in our righteousness. And so what we have to do is we have to understand righteousness is established and it's ongoing. 2 Corinthians 4.10, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So whenever you don't feel righteous, Jesus isn't going to die again to make you feel righteous, but there is a dying of yourself. You carry about the dying, that work of the cross. You carry it about in your body, in your life, so that God is manifest in your deeds. There's another way of, of, of putting this. It is that we are a work in progress. That we take up our cross daily. That there is in this life a flesh that desires to pull us back all of the time. That hearkens to us to tell us what we want and what we need and advertises all of our desires. And if we give in to that, then we stray from the righteousness which was established in God and Christ. And so we lose our confidence in this righteousness. But all we need to do is come back to that reality, come back to that, that cross, come back to Calvary, and we can have the confidence again. Maybe you're in the room this morning and you feel like because of things you've done, that you've wandered from God, that you have strayed, yet you know in your heart that you have a commitment, that you made a decision long ago to serve Jesus, that you made this declaration that you are going to love God in the ways of this world, the things of this life have choked out that love for God. You, you feel as though that you've been maybe drawn away by the desires of this life. And so you don't have a confidence of standing in God. Today, before this service is over, I plead with you, come back and turn your heart again to God. Come back to that place where God declares you righteous because he doesn't want you wandering. He doesn't want you guessing about your relationship with him. He wants you secure. Every good parent wants their child to be secure in their home, in their environment. They want them to know that home is where your, your parents are. Home is where the heart is. Home is that place you can come back regardless of anything you've done. If you're in trouble, just call. Just call me. I tell my kids, just call me. It doesn't matter what you've ever done. I'll never abandon you. Now, if I, as a, a human father, can be that loving towards my kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father desire for us to come home? To love him, to, to seek him, to confess it. Where does our healing come from? It comes from our confession. We confess and we become healed. Now, there's three things I want to say about effective prayer. And I want to illustrate it with the next verse in James chapter 5. But effective prayer has three components to it. It's real, it's humble, and it's expectant. Let me read this verse here. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man. I just want to stop right there. When you take a Bible character and you put them on a super spiritual pedestal and say, well, yeah, but they're in the Bible. Of course, God loves them. What you have to understand is this verse right here. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Say Elijah was just like me. Say Elijah wasn't special. Elijah was an example. He was given to us as an example of a person who was just like us. So you can relate 
with this character, Elijah. Elijah was one of the best prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah had so many wonderful works and, and miracles and, and signs and wonders followed wherever he went. Elijah was a man of God. But the Bible says that Elijah, if we're going to use his, him as an example, we have to understand what kind of a person that he was. Elijah wasn't some spiritual supercharged saint. Elijah may have been a prophet of God, but he was just a man with a nature like ours. So, okay, what's that mean, preacher? That means that you can relate to this verse because you are like him, that he is like you. Let's go on. And he prayed. So Elijah was a man of prayer. How did he pray? He prayed earnestly, kind of like a fervency about his prayer. He really meant business when he started praying before God. He prayed earnestly. You know, I, I have, to, I have to confess, if you ask me to pray for you, I will pray for you. I will probably pray right then. But if you really, really want to get a hold of God, you probably need to ask Holly to pray for you because she has prayers that avail much. I have watched over the years that my wife, I tell her, I say, it seems like you get prayers answered before I can get prayers answered, and I'm the pastor of the church. But she prays fervently. She prays with expectation. That's probably true of just about every woman that I have come in contact with when it comes to the spiritual endowment of God in the local body of church ever since I started serving God, is that if I really wanted something done in prayer, I usually don't call the elders of the church. I call the ladies of the church. Because women can pray. Amen, women? Come on, I'm preaching good, women. I think it may be the maternal instinct that there is just something about travailing. I mean, they know how to wait it out. You know, we men, we're really wimps when it comes to pain. And we're really wimps when it comes to patience. But women have something on us when it comes to pain and patience. And when it comes to prayer. But Elijah was a man who had disciplined himself, had learned to pray, and he prayed with anticipation. He prayed with expectancy. The Bible says here that he prayed earnestly, what? That it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. So, first of all, prayer is real. This real concept is what we try to capture with our mission of the church. You walk past it to get into this room uh, in the hallway. We have our mission on the wall. Can anybody tell me, just yell it out, what is the mission of New Freedom Church? Real people. Real freedom. Well, what does that really mean? Real people are like Elijah. They're faulty. They're flawed. They're insecure. They don't have their act all together. That's real. We want to be real people. We want to acknowledge that, listen, we don't have all of the answers. Even the pastor has questions that have gone unanswered. There are things which I have prayed about, which I have talked to God about. There are things which I have walked through in my life where I say, Lord, I can see you're not going to reveal it to me here. But on the other side of glory, when I get to heaven one day, when I look at you face to face, I really want you to answer this one for me. Real people can acknowledge they don't have it all together. They don't have all the answers. But real people can also say, what I know of God is enough to bring me to saving faith in God. That what I've seen God do and what I've seen him establish in my life is enough to cause me to incline my heart into him. Real people, and we're seeking out real freedom. Can I tell you what real freedom looks like? It looks like a mountaintop one day and a valley another. It looks like a plateau for a while, and it looks like a dry and arid land for a while. It looks like a spring of living water rising up with joy in your heart. And then real freedom can also look like a time of waiting and testing and patience.
That's just being real. And so we look at Elijah here, and it says that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three and a half years. Now, if I were Elijah, after a couple months, I would have been really worried about this prayer at first. Because if it, if it rains, and I prayed not to, and I said, God told me it's not going to rain. And if it rains, you're a false prophet, right? But after a couple months, and I'm Elijah, I'm like, hey, I'm pretty good at this prayer and stuff. I can do this. After a year, now Elijah is the big man on campus. I mean, he's got a channel with God. He's got direct line with the Lord. After three years, if, if it were me, I would probably be a little bit puffed up. Because God heard my prayer. But Elijah prayed earnestly. And then there's something about prayer that is humble. And the next, next piece of this is, is here. It says that, and it didn't, it didn't rain. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. To pray the first time would be kind of like a test. Like, okay, God, I'm going to do it. Anybody ever done this? Okay, God, if you told me to, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to do like you said, God. I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to do it. To pray again has a humility about it to say, I don't have the answers. And if you're going to pray, all prayer is, is humble. Can I tell you that? Because what you're saying is, if I could do it myself, I wouldn't pray about it. Some people are so spiritual. They wake up in the morning and they say, Oh, thou father, what would you have me to do? Shall I do the dishes? Shall I mow the grass? Shall I go to work? Or do you just want me to pray all day long? Listen, if the dishes are dirty, do the dishes. If the grass is long, cut the grass. You don't have to pray about it. Just do it. I don't pray about things I know that I can take care of. But prayer is when I say, God, I don't think I can do this on my own. And I humbly confess to you, I need some help in this matter. And so the first time was kind of like he's putting out there before God. But the second time it says he prayed again. And this is with expectation. And here's how you and I can relate with prayer in Elijah. It's this. When God gives you a word, you put that word before him, you pray that prayer. But then you watch in three and a half years, he had witnessed the goodness and the faithfulness of God. For three and a half years, every morning, I'm sure as a mortal, that he woke up and he hoped all that he could. I hope it doesn't rain today because I told the people it's not going to on the name of God. And he didn't want God to look bad, right? And so every day, and then when he prayed again, I can see this expectation he prayed with because he prayed like this. God, I know what you've done for three and a half years. God, I have a humility to ask you again, but I have a boldness to expect that you're going to do exactly like you said you're going to do because I have been declared righteous because I have been put in right standing with God and I have confidence in the past because of God's good faithfulness to me that I can pray this prayer again. So prayer is real, prayer is humble, and prayer is is expectant and it says that he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced fruit isn't that what we all want is a fruitful life i haven't met a person ever that says no i just want to be average i just want to be below the grade i don't want any fruit i don't want anything in my life to turn out right no we want to have a fruitful existence we want to have this expectation with God. We want to have this experience where God is showing his goodness in our life. And just like 
not every spiritual gift is right for every occasion. Not every prayer is right for every occasion. You have to pray the prayer according to the opportunity. You have to pray the prayer that is given to you by God to pray. And let me tell you this. Effective prayer is not effective because you got what you asked for. Effective prayers are prayed when you have faith and trust in the one you're asking it to. That's an effective prayer. Because it may not happen right away. It may not come overnight. There are things that you may have been praying for that the answer is slow or no. Don't lose faith. Don't lose heart. God is still for you. You pray effective prayers when you pray according to the will and the purposes of God. But there is one prayer that I want to close with. It is the most important prayer that any of us can ever pray. It is the prayer to say yes to God in his free gift of salvation. Around here we say that it's the ABC prayer. ABCs are pretty simple. We can all do our ABCs. But it's the ABC prayer. And it just consists of three parts. A is that you must admit, like Elijah, you must admit that you can't fix it on your own. You wouldn't be praying if you could fix it. So we admit that God, my life is in such a condition that I cannot fix it on my own. And maybe you've prayed before, but you've kind of strayed and you've wandered and you're far farther away than you used to be from God. Well, you can come back near and be made right today by just admitting that you can't fix what ails you on your own. Next is B, you believe that what God did by sending Jesus to this earth to die a criminal's death was on your behalf. You believe in his sacrificial death that he died for you and his death is yours when you say, yes, I believe. The Bible says, with the heart one believes unto salvation and with the mouth confession is made. A, you admit. B, you believe. C, you confess and commit. When you say yes to Jesus through a confession of your mouth, you are committing your life to him. And with heads bowed and eyes closed all around this room, I just want to ask you today, is God working on your heart to pray the most important prayer? Is God working on your heart this morning for you to maybe even update your relationship with God? Maybe just draw a little bit closer. Take that next step of faith. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Everyone who feels comfortable to do this, I encourage you to pray it out loud because maybe somebody next to you needs to hear this. We're going to pray this prayer and then I'm going to give you a tangible next step to take with God before we close with an announcement. And here's the prayer. Say it after me. Dear God, I come to you today just like I am. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. So today I repent. I turn from my old ways. I turn to you, God. I confess that Jesus is my savior and my Lord. I give my life to you today and I'll serve you as you show me how in Jesus name. Amen. Now everybody look up here. If you prayed that prayer, then you're born again. If you prayed that prayer, you have updated your relationship with God. You have come near again. You have been declared righteous by God. Two things I want to encourage you to do. Number one, before you leave, you need to tell somebody that you prayed that it's very important. Number two, we have a gift for you in the back. 
And it's a, a gospel of John. It's a simple book. We would love for you to take that, that book. But then the next tangible step that you need to take is you need to be baptized. Baptism is a public confession that you have said yes to God and you are part of the family of faith. Maybe it's been a long time since you've made a decision to step out like this and you want to make that tangible and visible. Well, the next week is your week because we're having Baptism Sunday. There's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. And if you've been thinking about being baptized, if it's something that's been on your heart and mind, then, then you need to do that. You need to do that because we're going to celebrate together in this very room next week. We're going to give you all the details about that. But you need to be baptized as a way to identify with this new decision with this family of God. 